Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, September 23rd, 2022. It's the first day that feels like fall here in the Annapolis, D.C. area. In Navy news this week, USNI News reports the trial for seaman recruit Ryan Mays, the sailor accused of arson for the fire on board the USS Bonham Richard in 2020, began this week. In Westpac, the USS Higgins conducted a Taiwan Strait transit with the Royal Canadian Navy frigate HMCS Vancouver, and Leonard Francis, aka Fat Leonard, was arrested in Venezuela this week trying to flee to Russia after giving federal marshals and NCIS the slip two weeks ago while he was awaiting trial. Continuing our September aviation theme, my guest today is Lieutenant Commander Jeff Zeberlein, a Navy F-18 pilot who is currently a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Most recently, he was the training officer of the world-famous Dam Busters of Strike Fighter Squadron 195, deployed to 5th Fleet in 2021 and 7th Fleet in 2022 on board the USS Ronald Reagan CVN-76. Jeff is a Top Gun graduate and has served at Strike Fighter Weapons School Pacific and also at Strike Fighter Squadron 2. Jeff is the author of the September Proceedings article, The Expeditionary Air Wing, A Diplomatic Role in Peacetime, making the point that in this time of great power competition, Navy F-18s and carrier air wings can play an expanding diplomatic role. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for writing for Proceedings. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. Okay. So start off, uh, what spurred you to write this article? Yeah. So um, I think I was interested to write this article because I felt like uh, there was something missing from the conversation and debate uh, amongst many other articles I've read uh, regarding our competition with China. Um, there's lots of good stuff out there, especially in proceedings about you know how, how we must prepare to win the, uh, the possible war against China. And there's also um, a fair amount of very interesting articles on how we can kind of counter their gray zone tactics uh, under the to topic of maritime counterinsurgency. Um, but I didn't feel like I had seen much about kind of what we should be doing before war occurs and in kind of a more of a peacetime context. Uh, you know, kind of what should our peacetime focus and tactics be prior to armed conflict? Um, so the, the big piece there is, of course, deterrence. Um, it's the major kind of concept there, integrated deterrence having been introduced by um, SecDef, Austin. Um, and, and ultimately, that's what we want, right? We want to deter China and deter other actors from altering the status quo, um, especially with force. Um, but it's a big topic that's kind of hard to pin down. And, and we can talk about more how, how this might help accomplish that. But to kind of get to the question you asked, yeah, I was looking to kind of express an idea about how F-18s and the carrier air wing uh, could participate in that threshold below war. And this article is a result of that. So one of the things you write is that diplomatic use of the aircraft carrier's symbolic power has atrophied over the past 20 years. How so? Yeah, so I think this is a claim that uh, I admittedly probably should have been a bit more specific about. You know, I think the symbolic power of a carrier can manifest in many ways. And uh, diplomacy is also a term that can mean different things to depending on where you sit. Um, so there were a couple of things I had in mind when I wrote that. You know, the first is kind of the simple notion that, you know, we've been bogged down in the Middle East for a long time. Uh, 
you know, we just ended our 20 year war in Afghanistan last year. And for nearly the entire 20 years, there was an unbroken chain of carriers present in Fifth Fleet. And so for better or for worse, the preponderance of our use uh, of carriers for two decades has been to combat terrorism in that region. Uh, there have been some opportunities during that time to work with partners nearby, depending on where the carrier was located. Uh, but it always took a seat uh, it always took a backseat to combat missions, and rightfully so. I'm not trying to claim that while we're at war, our primary mission should be to be diplomatic. Uh, no, you know, of course, it's, it's to win the fight. It's to support the troops on the ground, provide them with the firepower they're going to need so they can accomplish their mission. So when I say the diplomatic use of the carrier has atrophied, um, I mean, initially, that it really just hasn't been the focus of our mission for a long time. The second uh, is that my focus uh, of this article was really more on the carrier air wing itself and what it can provide to partner nations and allies through diplomacy. So, you know, it's true that the carrier has often been involved in diplomacy and even over the past 20 years. Um, and this kind of through its symbolic presence near uh, countries or regions that needed it right through port calls, uh, maybe official visits that have provided those face-to-face -face interactions for our governments. And those things are crucial. And sometimes it can it can be hard, kind of hard to know what impact that has. You know, kind of as one quick example, on my first deployment in 2017 on the USS Carl Vinson, uh, we were kind of, we were sent off the coast of North Korea to deter their missile tests and deter, uh, you know, their, their progress towards getting a nuclear bomb, right? So, um, this was also in the first few months of the Trump presidency. Um, and, you know, I may never know really if or how the carrier's presence uh, off the coast of North Korea influenced uh, North Korean decision making, or perhaps it bolstered the efforts of our high level diplomats to to negotiate the bilateral meetings that President Trump eventually had with Kim Jong Un. Right. But, uh, but if the carrier's presence did have an impact, then that is certainly the kind of diplomatic power the, the carrier can project around the world. And I think is what most people think of when they think of kind of carrier diplomacy. And so that's crucial. Um, but when I wrote about diplomatic atrophy, I, I was more referring to the kinds of activities that the carrier air wing can accomplish on a more personal diplomatic basis and, and through training. And so that's where I looked to history a bit and kind of read about and heard about you know, how often carriers used to send their aircraft into foreign countries to train with partners and allies. And, and that piece has waned a lot over the years. I've, I've talked to some who are kind of further along in their careers, you know, former COs or XOs or department heads. Um, and they've talked about detachments they did when they were JOs or their friends did and about the interesting experiences they had flying with pilots of other countries. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the article about how CAG-8 had detached to three different countries on their deployment in 2001 and were on their way home just prior to getting turned around to kind of start the invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11. And there were other examples I found in the early 2000s where, you know, Navy jets participated in Cope Tiger, for example, which is an annual exercise in Thailand. Um, but these st stories over time, they got fewer and farther between as the war on terror grew. And now I should also mention that, you know, I wrote this at the beginning of this year, at the start of 2022 and uh and already this year it seems like we've started to change these tides a bit 
which I think is really encouraging. And I, I know friends and colleagues who have deployed to Sixth Fleet this year who uh, did a lot of flying with foreign pilots. And it seems like those were hugely beneficial exercises in terms of building trust and interoperability among allies and kind of using the care wing, carrier air wing to establish diplomacy. And I'd, I'd just like to see that revived and, and increased a bit more in Seventh Fleet. Gotcha. So uh, I remember back my first deployment, I was the intel officer with an F-18 squadron, USS Theodore Roosevelt. She was the newest carrier in the fleet in 1988, 89. Uh, we deployed to the Mediterranean for six months. And guys in, in my squadron and the air wing did exactly what you're describing in this article. Right? I remember I, I went to uh, a little air base in northern Spain where two F-18s from our squadron did this uh, uh, ACM detachment for about three or four days with Spanish F-18s, for example. And then later on, you know, a couple of guys from my squadron, you know, spent a few days uh, uh, in Israel actually doing some uh, interesting air to ground, air to mud stuff with uh, the Israeli Air Force, uh, F-16s, et cetera. So this kind of thing, as you as you point out, you know, it was was de rigueur, you know, back in the 80s and 90s and, and probably went the wayside. Um, you know, because of 9-11, because of the, you know, the fight in Afghanistan and Iraq, which became the main focus for so long, but time to get back to that. Um, did you do any of this kind of thing during your deployment uh, to Fifth Fleet in uh, on Ronald Reagan, either in uh, 2021 or in, in Seventh Fleet in 2022 earlier this year? Yeah, so, um, you know, honestly, not enough, in my opinion, and and not much of the type of diplomacy or training that that I'm specifically advocating for. So, you know, sure, we did do um, bilateral and multilateral exercises uh, in the traditional sense of carrier diplomacy I was describing. So in uh, 2021, on our way to Fifth Fleet, you know, we sailed with Singapore um, and we got uh, photos next to their um, next to their ships flying with uh, or, uh, or sailing with them, you know, um, on our way back from that deployment, um, passing through India, um, we I got to actually fly in a uh, in a photo X of uh, with uh, four other Indian flankers and an Indian P8, um, and we also did um, a very large uh, kind of historic multilateral with countries uh, like Japan and the UK, uh, who sent their carrier, um, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, may she rest in peace, and. Um, we did get some good training for a couple days with uh, the Carl Vinson there and the QE2, uh, where we simulated attacks on their carrier and vice versa. Um, you know, in 2022, uh, in 7th Fleet, you know, I was only on half of that deployment. The Reagan is uh, is back out to sea now. And um, we were planning some great training events that, I, that um, you know, unfortunately, for one reason or another, just didn't quite pan out the way we hoped. Um, and I think that's one challenge is like, I certainly don't claim it's it's easy to coordinate um, the efforts of a carrier schedule with with foreign countries. But, you know, I'd really like to see more training and integration uh, with our partners be made the primary mission, you know, at least for some meaningful portion of a deployment. And again, kind of with a focus on what the air wing is accomplishing, not just using the carrier's presence. Uh, that's a great point. Uh You've got a good quote from Admiral Acalino, the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in your article. Can you read that for our listeners and just, you know, put that into the context of your thinking? Yeah, sure. So uh, in the article, I quoted his um, his prepared remarks from the Halifax International Security Forum in November of 2021. Uh, and he wrote, 
quote, uh, it is critically important that the global set of like-minded allies, partners, and friends work together to support our common values, end quote. Um, and that was a huge theme of his entire speech uh, as he spoke to high-ranking members of over 70 nations. And I thought it was just kind of a great representation of what many people in our chain of command, uh, all the way to, from the top, you know, uh, President Biden, Secretary Austin have emphasized and, and he have emphasized about the importance of building integrated deterrence. And I think you see that written in, in um, you know, the interim strategic, uh, interim, uh, strategic defense guidance, uh, the forthcoming national defense strategy, which is published but not released uh, unclassified yet anyway. Um, and so I, I think you see that all the way from the top. Um, and it, I think it just kind of represented the, the notion of what I'm just getting at. Yeah, great points. And, you know, to that integration point, uh, it, it's great to have allies and partners, but the, the real strength there is actually being able to interoperate with them, right? Yes. You, you can't just, uh, you know, sail next to them and have the photo op. You actually have to do hard, difficult training you got to be honest with each other. You got to be able to, you know, trust each other as wingmen that you're going to show up, that you understand each other, that you brief and you debrief together, etc. Um, exactly. One of the things that uh, that jumped out at me in your article is that you mentioned a number of benefits of international air exercises at the tactical, the operational, and the strategic level. Uh, and you were the training officer for the Dam Busters, and you know, keeping particularly on deployment, keeping uh, aviators completely, uh, you know, trained up for all the different missions, air to air, air to mud, uh, you know, anti-surface warfare, all these different things that, that, you know, that's hard after you've left Fallon and after you've left the home ranges in the United States. So, so talk a little bit about at the, at the tactical level, the individual air crew and squadron level, what are some of the benefits that you see uh, coming from some of these uh, air exercises that, that you're advocating for? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are a lot of benefits. And uh, this is where I've had ton, uh, tons of fun just kind of talking with and imagining with uh, friends and other tactics instructors uh, about kind of what great training we could get, you know, if we just attached a portion of our air wing to bases on foreign countries. So at the tactical level, um, you know, one benefit, having some aircraft on land and others on the carrier would help mitigate uh, some of the trouble we have when we set up our fights. You know, when we set up a training event, we typically have to fly uh, long distances in the opposite direction uh, before we can turn around and face each other. Um, and that's because we all start from the same spot in the ocean, you know, on the carrier. Um, and those things, that takes time and gas away. And when you're doing these high-end training events, uh, time and, and gas is, is precious. Um, we do see those benefits when we have dual carrier ops um, as one can play blue and one carrier can play red, uh, but we don't always have two carriers available. So splitting up our forces um, on, you know, by detaching them uh, would accomplish that same goal on foreign soil. Um, I think it would also be very beneficial uh, to the realism of our training to, to have uh, not every aircraft be of the same type, you know, not have all F-18s versus all F-18s. So if we could get foreign navies and air forces to kind of participate uh, with us uh, from from their bases, you know, we could enhance the realism of our training a little bit. Um, I also think just at the at the individual training level for for the people on the carrier and the the ships uh, in the carrier strike group, the the destroyers and cruisers, it would help 
their training a lot at the individual level because um, they would have to you know detect oncoming forces and react appropriately rather than kind of getting getting to be able to cheat and watch them kind of take off from where they are, fly many miles away and then turn around, you know? So I think it would certainly improve the training to more realistic rules of engagement and uh, alert launch timelines. Um, on the air to surface side, uh, being able to train to close air support in a foreign country on ranges that allow bombs to be dropped on actual targets that can be, that, that we can discriminate with um, using qualified JTACs would allow us to accomplish training that often goes neglected during uh, long non-combat deployments. You know, there's, uh, as you mentioned, there's there's an intense and comprehensive training syllabus that we use to, to create section leads uh, and air to surface missions often get paused when we're on deployment just for sheer lack of ranges, you know, so that, so that could be a huge uh, benefit as well. Um, but probably the best part uh, and perhaps the most under underappreciated part um, when talking about training at the individual level and that interoperability with our partners is the ability to debrief together after a mission. So I know it sounds boring, but I can promise I speak for almost all patchwares when I say, you know, the debrief is probably the most important part of any training mission. Um, if you just go up there and fly around, um, come back and just high five, you know, you'll never know how well you did or where you need to improve. So when we land on the boat without getting to meet the, the people we're flying with, those foreign pilots, uh, or to get to talk in depth about how the training went, you know, we're not really learning from our mistakes or improving on the ability to integrate in the future. And yes, we can mitigate that with a phone call um, or, or an email, but it's just not the same. So I think the benefits of face-to-face -face interaction with other pilots uh, that we would fly with is enormous. And it, I think it would foster much more trust between our militaries if we were able to make that happen on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, one of our regular listeners, uh, Austere Roberto, he also picked up on that. He said, I love the easy fixes like debriefing together. To your point, when you're, when you're operating with somebody that you're not normally operating with, you get, you get a different perspective. And if they're flying an F-16 or if they're flying, uh, you know, a, a Super A-Tendard, I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but they're flying different airplanes, right, than you are, That's instead of just, you know, fights on and you're fighting Super Hornet to Super Hornet, you're fighting something different that turns differently, that uh, maneuvers differently, that has a different weapons envelope, et cetera. There's value in that. So Absolutely. thanks for that point, uh, uh, Austere Roberto. Yeah, we're repeat offender. Well, well put. Um, so, Jeff, what are some of the um, benefits at the operational level or within the region that you see? And I know you've already touched on some of this. Uh, it, it just gets to that cohesion with that with allies and partners but just build on that a little bit if you would yeah for sure within the region i think it's crucial um you know again we're we're gearing up for a potential fight with an adversary whose military size and capability we just have not faced before um so if that were to happen kind of god forbid you know we're going to need all the help we can get um so fostering these relationships now uh meeting people interacting with them training with them I think those things will be crucial later on. You know, I'll tell you, like, even after 10 years of flying, you know, I, I can still be a little bit uncomfortable when I'm arriving at an airfield or a base I've, I've never been to. You know, it's just part of that unknown. But uh, I mean, imagine a scenario where we built those relations ahead of time. And, you know, now all of a sudden we're in conflict and uh, maybe we have to I have to divert to the Philippines, for example, or maybe Singapore or Vietnam, you know. 
the ability to have a level of comfort of having kind of been there before, uh, maybe even flown with somebody at that base who can kind of be a familiar face when you land would be crucial. And he, you extend that familiarity to the potential benefits if we actually needed to operate out of those bases or countries. And uh, you think about the logistics of how um, how that how a potential conflict uh, would go. You know, we don't have American soil nearby except for the carrier, right? So if that gets kind of taken out of the equation, or perhaps you have to divert, you, you have an emergency or you take battle damage or something like that, you know, maybe you have to go land in a foreign country. And so I think getting everybody used to that um, is one aspect of how it's going to benefit us at the operational level. The other is, again, kind of what I mentioned about improving the quality of training, both for us and our partners. So any effort we can make now to improve the substantive capabilities of our partners is going to increase our oper operational advantage if full-scale war does indeed happen. So, you know, it's obvious that we're going to be playing that away game. And so we need our partners to increase their capabilities. And if we have the ability to help them do that, um, you know, that's going to be hugely beneficial. And I, th and I think the F-18 is particularly suited um, well amongst our nation's air assets to, to, to do that, as it was designed to be kind of the jack of all trades. And, you know, we train to just about every type of mission. So we can support them in kind of whatever mission they're comfortable uh, training with us, you know, we can do. And um, you you practice those, those simple things and work up to more complex training. Um, that, that's going to greatly improve our operational advantage um, should, should we have to go to war. Yeah, I'm having flashbacks to being the intelligence officer and doing the, the TV briefs, the civic briefs for aviators before they flew in, in uh, on that med deployment. And then another one, we went through the Met in 1997, uh, you know, the divert fields in Spain, the divert fields in Italy, in Sardinia, in Greece, in uh, the Eastern Med, right? And having to having to brief all that stuff. Um, yeah, you bring back, you bring up some good points. Just the fact that you're operating uh, out of places that you haven't been before, there's always value, there's training, there's uh, interoperability that, that just comes with that. And it seems pretty mundane when you think about it, at the strategic level, but at the tactical level, nah, you, you actually have to have that familiarity. You have to have been there. You have to you know, know people who've been there. Your wingman's been there or your flight lead's been there. Um, they can impart some of that that uh, you know experience to you. It's a great point. Uh, Duncan Stewart makes the point that uh, live fire in Korea has resumed after three years. So we had, we had stopped doing live U.S. military and U.S. rock military exercises. Uh, that was part of the, you know, I, not not putting the right term on it, but the charm offensive of the previous administration. Uh, you know, so we made the promise to the, the the North Koreans that we wouldn't do live exercises, but we're back to live exercises. So that that poss possibly opens up some of those training ranges in in the Rock to um, you know other carrier uh, air wings in the future. Um, and also, Duncan, you uh, I, I mentioned uh, Med Cruise eighty eight. I was wrong. Our Med Cruise was in. Uh, 1989, early 89 on the on the Theodore Roosevelt. So I missed you by, by about a year there. But um, Jeff, uh, I want to change subjects for a minute. Uh, I was out at Tailhook with Ward last uh, two weeks ago. And uh, at, at the Tailhook Symposium in Reno, there was a panel discussion about the making of Top Gun. It was great. You know, they had uh, because that, that all that footage was shot three years ago, three plus years ago, which is interesting. You know, the movie just came out because of COVID. It was held. It was held. But they had, you know, uh, the Navy advisor. They had Chaser Keithley, who's the, the president of the Tailhook Association, who had 
I, I think, a great deal of influence on the making of the movie. They had uh, a number of uh, aviators who flew in the, in the movie itself. And they mentioned, one of the things that they mentioned was that uh, when they went to Fallon or they went to Lemoore and they flew scenes, that they didn't just open it up for senior pilots, that they essentially put out like a base-wide call for JOs. Hey, if you're available and you want to fly in the movie, you know, come fly. So I know you were at Lemoore, so I had to ask, uh, were you stationed at Lemoore at the time? And did you get to fly in any scenes in the movie Top Gun Maverick? Oh, man. Uh, I wish. Uh, I wish. No, unfortunately, I, I did not. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this uh, this movie was delayed by two years. Um, and so they actually began filming some of like the initial scenes and getting um, getting the actors familiar with with flying in those scenes uh, while I was going through Top Gun uh, about uh, almost four years ago. Um, so, uh, yeah. I was at the time a little too focused on on getting through the class, uh, but after that, I was stationed in, in Lemoore at the Weapons School. Uh, unfortunately, we don't own our own aircraft, so we yeah. were not always uh, called upon to uh, to participate in that. But I do have some friends who uh, flew many of the scenes, uh, and I'm very jealous of their experience. You know, they have a lot of cool stories, and and some of them actually even became pretty decent friends to this day with uh, some of the actors. So uh, they've got some cool stories. I wish I wish I could have been a part of that. Yeah, the stories that they told in that panel discussion were really terrific. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that that uh, the Tailhook Association uh, recorded that session from Tailhook, and I think it's up on their website. So um, if you've got the time, go to tailhook.found, I think it's uh, tailhook.org. Mm -hmm. uh, you can probably find that. It, it's just a, some really interesting stories about on the Navy side and on the cinematography side for the air-to-air -air missions you know what they said. I, I was one thing that I, I just wanted to pass on because it was. Uh, I'm talking to a Jo here, and and they the 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 guy that was in charge on the Hollywood side of flying. They had a especially equipped uh, jet that had this gimbal camera that mm -hmm. you could change the lenses and the the uh, filters while they were airborne, so you didn't have to land and change lenses and all that stuff. Um, and, and a very accomplished pilot, civilian pilot. But he mentioned that uh, just how impressed he was with with Navy JO aviators because they would go and they would brief and they would say, look, this is what we want to accomplish with this particular mission, this particular flight. Here's what we're looking to, to uh, you know, this is what we want this scene to look like in the movie. And JOs would go, got it. They'd brief, they'd go fly it, they'd come back and be like, yep, got it. And, and then move on to the next scene. He said it was just amazing how professional and organized and, and um, you know, just uh, terrific aviators, you know, the, all the JOs were. And it, he said, you know, we weren't working with, with all former Blue Angels. We're working with just, you know, your fleet average JO who would show up and be ready for the flight. And they would go and they'd execute the mission and get it done. And, you know, they would capture the image and or the uh, the scene. And it was like, okay, we're on to the next scene. So that was, uh, I thought, just a, a really, you know, sort of resounding uh, compliment. Uh, from Hollywood, you know, from somebody who makes movies uh, to the Navy, which was just terrific. Um, uh, we're running a little bit of, uh, short on time, uh, so I wanted to ask you for uh, if you've gotten any feedback on your article yet from you know your your uh, colleagues, your uh, wingmen, um, and any other points you might want to make about you know naval aviation in general, how grad school is tr tr treating you. Uh, you know, you're out of the cockpit now. You're uh, you're studying grand strategy and uh, international politics. 
so the floor is yours for a couple minutes here. Yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah, grad school is exciting for me personally, but uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I don't, I don't bore your listeners with <laughs> with what I'm doing in grad school. Um, I have gotten a little bit of uh, feedback from people who've read it, and I, I think uh, a lot of people that I've talked to, both before and after uh, it was published, you know, have have said. Uh, that they'd love to see this kind of idea happen in the future. And I don't think it takes much to convince a lot of people that uh, there's an idea here where we get to fly off of the boat for a period of time during deployment. I mean, everyone's just looking to get off the boat once they're on it. Uh, so, um, you know, on, on my article and idea, I, I guess the one thing that um, I just uh, probably didn't express enough uh, in the article uh, is just that, you know, I, I think I'm encouraged by where where things are headed, you know, um, as I said, I originally wrote this um, at the beginning of this year, and at that time, I didn't see much kind of movement in the direction of prioritizing air wing integration uh, during uh, these these foreign training events. So, and and I think perhaps some of that delay, especially when you talk about sending sending people uh, off the ship, uh, was due to you know just a, a risk averse you know bringing COVID back on on board the ship for the you know for the past two years, and so I think that kind of set us back. I think, but I, but I know a lot of people have been wanting to do this. And so even just this year, you know, we've made good steps in this direction, uh, you know, as we did in sixth fleet uh, earlier this year. Um, I think we just need to make these efforts um, a higher priority in the Indo-Pacific. And I, and I, I know there are a lot of good, great people, friends who are working very hard on air wing staffs and CSG staffs who kind of want to see these integration efforts happen. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hopefully getting to participate those uh, in those in my next squadron. Yeah, you, you make a good point about COVID and the impacts that that had. Uh, I, I talked to a couple of JOs from one of the VAQ squadrons that had been deployed on the Carl Vinson earlier this year. They had done, I think they said a 10 month deployment and they had a grand total of four days in port and all of them were in Guam. So US territory in Guam, and that was the extent of their you know, foreign liberty on a on a ten month deployment, which is yeah. uh, almost unthinkable to me. Um, uh, I wanted to throw out a couple of things. Uh, we got two more questions from Austere Roberto. One was uh, any smart uh, insights into China's economy so far from Johns Hopkins. So you can pass on that one, or you can or you can tackle it if you want. And the other one is he asked a question about AETP engines. Okay, uh, I wish I could answer those. I don't know that I'm qualified yet. I uh, okay. um, I do plan uh, this this semester. Uh, it's been tough to get into certain classes. One of the classes I wanted to get into was uh, was on Chinese foreign policy and Chinese uh, uh, political economy. Uh, I'm they have more options available in the spring, so hope I'll, I'll get back to them on that one. Good. Um, and uh, a, the next question I'm just I'm unfamiliar with is that uh, the I don't, I'm not I sure what the AET, yeah, I didn't recognize that either. That's not the engine in the uh, in the Super Hornet. I don't think it's the engine, it's not the engine in the uh, F-35 either, so I'm not, not At sure. At least that's not that. how we refer to it as, so I, I was just not recognizing it right now. Got it, no problem, no problem. Well, our guest today has been Lieutenant Commander Jeff Zeberlein, U.S. Navy F-18 Super Hornet pilot, Top Gun graduate. He's the author of an article titled, The Expeditionary Air Wing, A Diplomatic Role in Peacetime, which appears in the September issue of Proceedings. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. I hope you'll come visit us soon in Annapolis. Thank you, it was a pleasure and uh, I'll definitely make that happen soon. Fantastic. Okay, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. 
If you enjoyed the show, like us and subscribe to our channel. Tell your friends, become a member of the Naval Institute at usni.org forward slash join. Until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.